The Computer Science Channel connects you to computing and its impact on the world around us, from commerce and communicating to connecting and cybersecurity, from computational biology to tracking your health. Discover what the future will be at the Computer Science Channel. I am super excited to welcome Colleen Lewis as our first speaker for the year in our DEI speaker series. Colleen is uh, the, well, you can see her title, the uh, McGregor Gerund, Associate Professor of Computer Science at Harvey Mudd College. And she does amazing work in computer science education with a focus on equity and diversity and really kind of understanding, um, you know, how to make teaching and education better in computer science. So she's going to tell you about all of her great work and her great resources, um, but a little bit of a funny story on her background. So as some of you know, I used to work at Harvey Mudd College, and the year I moved here to UC San Diego was the year that Colleen was hired at Harvey Mudd College, and she went straight in. She got my office. She got my desk. And for the first couple of years, I think people were like confusing us, and they'd be like, oh, professor, you, you look different. So it's kind of funny. Um, and we work in similar areas. So it is my great pleasure to introduce Colleen. Thank you. Yeah, I think the greatest flattery I can receive is when people mistake me for Christine. Although that happened after I had been at Harvey Mudd for like two or three months. And someone saw me at a conference and they were like, oh, hey. And I was like, oh, hi. And they're like, I'm so glad to see, from my name tag, that you're still at Harvey Mudd. And I'm like, oh, three months in, I'm not that bad at my job. Do you know what I mean? Like, like you must think I'm Christine. But I was like, thanks. <laughs> yeah, okay, so uh, what am I about? I'm all about optimizing uh, computer science learning and identifying and removing barriers. So we're going to talk about equity and inclusion today. Uh, I did undergrad at UC Berkeley in electrical engineering and computer science. Then I worked as a software engineer at Capgemini and LeapFrog. Then I went back to grad school and I did a master's in computer science and a PhD in education. So my training is in like how do people learn computer science and how do people feel about learning computer science. Uh, I now work, at, as Christine said, at Harvey Mudd College, uh, where thanks to the work of Christine and others, but since Christine's not there, everyone whenever there's credit to go around for the fact that we have a lot of women in computing, they're just like, oh, Christine did it all. And she's not there to defend herself. And I do think that she orchestrated it all, but I do think my current colleagues did some of the work. I, show, I rolled in in 2012 uh, just to try and keep things going. Uh, since then, we've got about, uh, our last graduating class was 56% women. So we're in that 40 to 60% women uh, range each year, but we're a super small school, just 850 students. Uh, but our incoming classes in the last uh, two to three years have been representative of the racial demographics of the country. Uh, so we're at about 11% black students and we're about 25% uh, Latinx or Hispanic students. Uh, so it's a great place to work to think about equity and inclusion. And again, that's what my research area is on too. My uh, first NSF project was a, a website csteachingtips.org to try and document and disseminate effective teaching practices. Like it just turns out that expert CS teachers already know a bunch about how to make classrooms inclusive and effective. So I interviewed 150 computer science teachers and we've got tip sheets up there. Uh, or We've got uh, tips on the internet and then these tip sheets for sort of uh, how to lecture, reduce bias, encourage students to seek help, etc. Today, I'm uh, as context. I'm motivated by this idea that uh, 
we have real inequity in terms of who's pursuing computer science. So uh, the KPOR Center for Social Impact, that's the Lotus Notes people. Um, yeah. The, so they do a bunch of research in this space, not because they, just because they have money from Lotus Notes, right? Of like, uh, so men earn 82% of bachelor's degrees in CS, while women earn uh, only 18%, and 20% are black and Latinx. These are all US-based numbers. And then uh, people can identify as both Latinx and black. And so actually in the US population, it's about 28% of the population identifies as black and or Latinx, uh, just as context. And it's uh, this... Uh, sort of presumes a gender binary that people are either men or women, uh, which is not the case. But um, yeah, big picture, this helps us see some of the broad patterns of inequity. But <clears throat> we often use this uh, leaky pipeline metaphor when we're talking about computer science, but it's just like, oh, we, when we have a leaky pipe in our home, we don't blame the water. We need to think about like what is the infrastructure that we're providing so that students can be successful. I think the pipeline metaphor is actually a pretty limiting metaphor in general. I think the watershed sort of metaphor works a lot better where there's multiple entry points. Um, <clears throat> but I want us to, as you know, today we're talking about equity and inclusion in computer science, and I want us to be thinking about fixing the pipes, fixing our infrastructure and our structures of education to make them inclusive, rather than being like, this student, let me fix this student, or this group of students. We're not in the business of fixing students, we're in the business of fixing systems. Um, okay, so today's talk... Um, I want to try and share like a broad swath of my research. And there's like other stuff that I haven't done, but I think is really important that you should like know about. And so it's also that stuff woven in. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to use one of the tip sheets that we have, tips for department inclusivity or tips for broadening participation in computing. Um, and I'm going to use this as the structure to embed this research either that other people have done that I think you should know about or like stuff that I've done because like it turns out I think that's fun and interesting to talk to people about. Um, okay, so here's the thing about this work is I'm going to give you the research that motivates these particular points, but I hope that none of them are surprising to you. Like we should be surveying our students, optimizing the intro course, monitoring performance patterns, supporting new pedagogies, training faculty to respond to bias, fostering student community, and showing students a breadth of CS. That's where we're going, yeah? So this is going to be our outline. <clears throat> optimizing the intro course, in the middle of telling you about this research, you're going to forget that there's any structure to the talk whatsoever. Okay? I just think it's better to warn you now. Yeah? But I promise we'll tie back and eventually loop back around to three. Yeah? Okay. All right, so here we go, Depart tips for department inclusivity. This one's real quick, surveying students regularly. You all are a data buddy school, so the Computing Research Association has a sur an annual survey for graduate students and undergraduate students uh, called the Data Buddy Survey, and then they provide you department reports that show your students' survey responses about their experience in the major, in courses, and all that jazz, in contrast to other PhD-granting institutions. Uh, so you're, you check... Hopefully you're using that, those survey responses as a department to try and identify opportunities for improvement. Maybe that's like the second piece that is embedded in this assumption of surveying your students regularly. Uh, but 
Right now, I would love it if all, the survey is out for this year. It always is around October 15th through like beginning of January is when we want your students to fill out the survey. So the extent to which you can find the email somewhere in your inbox, I bet you have gotten it. And then tell your students, like post that on Piazza, be like, fill out this survey. Because it turns out if we know more about what uh, our students are experiencing in our classrooms, we can do a better job of customizing and improving the climate and culture. Uh, and this is all provided. It's free. You guys are already doing it uh, from the Center for Evaluating the Research Pipeline. Then in April, you should be waiting for the department report. So you can be like, oh, how do our students stack up to other students at PhD granting institutions and to the extent to which they feel like they belong or that they have a mentor or that they feel like this place is toxic? Do you know what I mean? And you want to be on the edge of your seat come April. Yeah? OK. All right, next one is optimizing the intro course. So when I got to Harvey Mudd, we had a bunch of different introductory computer science courses. And you can think about these as on-ramps into the major. And we had on-ramps for students regardless of their prior experience. And that piece that students can be successful even without high school experience is super important because it turns out, do you know that like our school system is unequal based upon race and class? Does this sound familiar? It's, that's, it's not great. And then uh, computer science has an additional bind where even when it's offered at a school, counselors, uh, families, and students have ideas about who does computer science, and computer science is primarily opt-in. And so we see really differential rates of participation uh, for high school students in computer science by race, class, and gender. Uh, and some of that is like broken systems where it's not even offered at their school, and other pieces are like who's encouraging whom to take what. Okay, but here we are at a public institution, students are arriving at the door, and like we should try and make it so that they can be successful learning computer science. I'm into that. And so thinking about these multiple on ramps. Um, normally, when I'm giving talks, I'm like, oh, your department has a competitive enrollment policy to get into the major. Okay, it's a little complicated that students at UCSD have to know in high school that they want to major in computer science. Maybe we all agree that's not ideal. But once they get here, they're like, oh, I need a 4.0 to get into this thing. I feel like you've kind of addressed by having this raft, like a lottery. Props to you. Basically, I go around and I'm like, here's this thing Christine Alvarado did. I, maybe you all did it, I don't know, but like, she's my point person. And be like, oh, and you should do this too. Uh, that's, that's a different talk. It's just Christine's face on every other slide. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so here's some of my research from uh, interviews with students at UC Berkeley and UW Seattle. Uh, so they talk about CS1 or that intro course is like taking a foreign language class, but the majority of students are already native speakers. You'd think that helped you, but teachers adjust to the native speakers, so people who are new to the idea just get left behind in the dust. So this idea of multiple on-ramps that are meeting the needs of students, knowing that we have differential opportunities for access to high school computer science. It's usually super important. Okay, this one's more upsetting. Even my professor told us that some people are just born that way, with the, that mental outlook that is compatible with CS. They feel it's so easy for them. Yeah, and he told the rest of the people that some of you will try, but you won't get it. And it's just that your mental outlook isn't made that way. It's something you're born with. You can't help it. I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, I was really happy that I was not the person who was interviewing the student as they said this. I just, I got to like 
consume it through transcript, which is much less painful. Um, so here's the deal, is when students have different levels of preparation in the C same CS course, then students with no preparation before uh, coming to college are going to see students who are like flying through your courses. And because we have this narrative that computer science requires innate ability, it's like, oh, those students have it, and I don't. Also, as professors, you shouldn't tell students that. I'm going to give you more evidence in case, uh, like, imagining the impact of this is not enough. Um, but it relates to this idea uh, popularized by Carol Dweck. She's a psychologist at Stanford, and she talks about this idea of a fixed versus growth mindset. So the growth mindset is just like, oh, your mind is a muscle. It's hard to learn things, but you can learn things. Like, oh, that seems pretty reasonable. And a fixed mindset is there is like a genetic code and there's like a geek gene that you have to unlock to be able to be good at particular things. Uh, and the book is actually like a super easy read that presents evidence in a lot of different disciplines that like, oh, it turns out you can learn things. Not too surprising. Yeah. Is there something special about computer science here? Does this manifest equally in math? Oh, the, the geek gene narrative? And, and people's response to it. Yeah, I think it, I think they're, normally people say, it, normally I get the question, but isn't computer science different than other things where it does require a geek gene? That's the normal question I get at this point in the talk. Um, but I do think that there are things that are special about computer science around the, the narratives and stereotypes that we have. So I'll hit on that in just a second, and then we'll all circle back to make sure I, like, tied up those loose ends. Um, <clears throat> so we're... Their fields in general have a, a differ in the extent to which they're stereotyped as requiring innate ability. So on the uh, x-axis here is field-specific ability belief. So like, does it require genius or like some geek gene? And then on the uh, y-axis is going to be the percentage of U.S.-based PhD students who are PhD graduates who identify as female. Uh, and are you expecting like sort of a downward trajectory there of disciplines? Um, and so computer science is doing even worse than you might expect. And I think uh, computer science has a number of occupational identity stereotypes, or like ideas of who does computer science. Um, and they don't all relate to the geek gene. Uh, but also, like maybe people tell us that you should not want to shower or do anything other than computing or have any friends. Like certainly those are stereotypes that exist. People also told me when I was deciding to pursue computer science that I couldn't do it because I was a morning person. And it's just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, oh, you're right. Computers don't work in the morning. Like I don't, I don't understand. But. Um, but we do have all this range of stereotypes. Um, and, and maybe people have seen, give me some nods or some shakes. Have people seen this graph? Uh, so this is the percentage of uh, various disciplines that are held by women. So the red line here is computer science. And we had a peak in 1985 where it was about 35% women. Probably in this room, people know that the ENIAC programmers, like the first six programmers, were all women. They're not shown on this uh, chart, but <laughs> 100%. But, um, 
But uh, we had this market decline in 1985. Um, and actually, this book by Nathan Ensmenger, who's a historian of science from uh, Indiana Bloomington, The Computer Boys Takes Over, talks about what were the media things that happened in terms of selling home computers, and what were the ways that uh, computing and computer science and computers became masculinized around 1985. And so this is a lovely book that sort of chronicles what are those different dimensions that shaped that downturn. Are you still like, oh yeah, Colleen, I don't remember that we're part of a list. This is about optimizing the intro course. I told you that you, it would, we would lose it a bit, and it, we're not coming back yet. Uh, one more is, uh, I love the work of Karen Ashcraft. So she talks about uh, the idea that disciplines have an occupational identity, and she thinks of that as like a glass slipper. And a glass slipper for computer scientists, like, oh, doesn't, wanna, doesn't have a social life, only likes coding, doesn't shower, not a morning person or whatever. Some, like, do you know what I mean? The stereotypes, the false stereotypes, seem like they would fit nobody. And so she thinks of it as like a glass slipper. And so it's like all of us are trying to, we're ugly stepsisters, are trying to jam our foot in this stereotype that doesn't, like it doesn't, like this seems like a showering bunch. Do you know what I mean? It's, the, the stereotypes seem appealing to no one. But um, Okay, so back to Carol Dweck for a second. Um, there was a big study looking at 15,000 students in, enrolled in a bunch of different courses. And what they wanted to know is, you know, when a professor has a fixed versus growth mindset, how does that shape students' experience? Yeah? Um, <clears throat> so... In, but your takeaway is if you should believe that students can learn to motivate your students and get higher course evaluations. I am fine with those motivations. Um, so how much did your instructor motivate you to do your best work? Uh, so the dark is the, the darker color is the fixed mindset. This is the growth mindset. So it's comparing the differences uh, for a student's responses to that question based upon how their instructor of the 150 instructors um, filled out a survey about fixed versus growth mindset. Uh, <clears throat> Emphasize learning and development. That one's maybe not too surprising. And how much would you, like, would you recommend this instructor to others? And so I like to tell people, even if you think there is a geek gene, still, no matter what, our courses need to challenge students. Like, we're not really doing our job unless students are challenged. And if they think being challenged means that they cannot be successful in it, like, we are toast in terms of any of them learning anything. And so even if you think it's a geek gene, it's better for your course evaluations, and it, your students are more likely to actually learn things uh, if you tell them that they can learn things and that challenge and struggling is normal. Um, I also sometimes assume that like people in this room are already like on the same page with me, but you want more evidence to bring to other people. Yeah, and so like I think this is a nice study that you might share with others. Um, and the I've got on the last slide a tiny URL for all the slides. Okay, so from this um, and my previous interviews at UW and Berkeley, I was like, yo, these department policies for major like competitive enrollment uh, and whether or not students can opt out of CS1. So like, are there essentially multiple on ramps for students with different experience, or are all they packed into one? Does that decrease students' sense of the department, or does that uh, predict a student's sense of the department as unwelcoming, a lower sense of belonging, a lower self-efficacy, that's like belief in their ability to do it, and a fixed mindset, that's the, it requires a geek gene. And in this first year, um, uh, 
We used super, super crude methods for determining if a department policy was competitive. Like if you have a GPA cutoff, we called you competitive, which is way overclassifying. Like we classified you all as competitive enrollment, even though like it doesn't quite make sense because it's a lottery and high school enrollment. So even with these super crude overgeneralizations, um, we're seeing some patterns. Oh, and, and I think it's worse for students without high school experience. That's our hypothesis. Uh, so, oh, and we're only looking at first year students because like there's some survivor bias in terms of like who do we end up with after that first year. So we're just looking at the um, uh, about 2,000 students from this survey, from that Computing Research Association survey that I mentioned that hopefully your students will fill out, um, from that survey who were first years. Uh, so here is the big picture. So controlling for race and gender, and actually also controlling for institutions. So we use institution fixed effects. Students without prior experience, um, Competitive enrollment was a significant negative predictor of sense of belonging and self-efficacy. And then prior, with, with prior experience, it was a negative predictor of perception the department is welcoming. Um, oh, I have the space at the wrong place. This inability to pass out of CS1, we had bad numbers on it where like only 11 of the 183 institutions didn't allow you to pass out. And it wasn't a neg it wasn't a negative it wasn't a predictor of any of our behavior or any of our outcomes of interest, but it was kind of a garbage measure. Which you're like, Colleen, you should have figured that out in advance. That's fair. Um, but <clears throat> uh, in this next round, so uh, this is our initial publication to be like, oh yeah, I think there's something here. And uh, now we're going to be doing more work to try and gather data from departments to be like, oh, do you have a competitive enrollment process? Like how competitive it is, is it? Uh, to try and get more of a sense. Additionally, with this passing out of CS1, so the situation at UW Seattle was that students were like, no matter how, if you've been programming since you were in the womb, you still should take the intro CS class so you can get a 4.0 and then get into the major because they have a competitive enrollment process. And so this, they have the ability to pass out of CS1, but it doesn't help. Um, because of some of the other structures. And in general with this, uh, this is my uh, current grant. So we've got four more years on this working with the Computing Research Association. Did I tell you that disclaimer that I work with them before I plugged the survey really hard? <laughs> Maybe not. Uh, sorry. But um, we're trying to look at like what are the departments or institutional levers that we can use to try to make student make an improved climate and more inclusive environment for students. Uh, and so I think these competitive enrollment processes are one of them. I'm really excited to look at uh, like a regression discontinuity for places like UCSD who have changed your policy uh, to see how that shifts students' uh, experiences. OK. That's the bulk of the talk. The rest of them will go like quicker, I promise. Um, so we want to optimize the intro course and really make it so that students don't need experience, at least for one of the CS courses that they could take. It's super important to monitor performance patterns, and I want to provide some nuance there. So I want you to be looking at performance patterns in your course by race, by class, by gender. Uh, these are important things to do, but there's some subtlety there that we'll hit. Um, so at, I did my undergrad and grad. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, forward one. So this part was really quick. This is the only slide about this. Can you say something about different courses by that? Oh, 
Oh yeah, I mean different on-ramps based upon your high school experience. Have you had some CS in high school, APCSA in high school, or not? Is what I mean. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. 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 Um, so at, at Berkeley, the data structures class, CS61B, there was a narrative or there was a fact that women were getting lower grades than men. Uh, and, and people were like, huh, that's weird. Uh, so there was this course, uh, CS61A, their like intro course. There was no gender difference in performance there. But then all of a sudden when we got to data structures, there was a gender difference. Okay, so... They need to be, we need to be monitoring those types of performance patterns, but when we find those performance patterns, we can't be like, oh, gender is an explanatory variable for poor performance in data structures. Do you know what I mean? Like, flush out the body of that paragraph. Do you know what I mean? Like, what, what would you put in there? Um, but if you look at the paths to get to CS61B, people might take CS3, which is in scheme, 61A was in scheme, APCSA, sorry, APCSA was in Java, as was our data structure, CS61B, so the green outlined. Can you have a guess of what might be a reasonable predictor of students' performance in data structures? Uh, and here's data, relevant data from uh, participation of the APCS exam around the four-year period where uh, we collected data. Uh, and so there, about 19% of the APCSA students who learned Java uh, were identified as female. So actually, someone's gender identity was a pretty good predictor or a better predictor of whether or not they had seen Java through an APCSA course. Uh, and so it turns out if you just control for whether or not students have Java experience, there's no difference in performance between men and women in data structures. And so we need to be looking for these patterns because it can be the canary in the coal mine. It's not the gender, race, or class are an explanatory variable. But by looking for those performance patterns, we can start to dig deeper to see what are the explanatory variables. And it's like, oh, women are less good at data structures. What do we do? But it's just like, oh, students who don't know Java find data structures where we're also learning Java harder. Like, I bet people in this room could come up with an intervention that might be helpful to that. Um, <laughs> has any intervention, like, since I published this and documented it and publicized it in the department, has anything happened at Berkeley? Not that I know of. Uh, it's real discouraging. But don't be like that. Look for performance patterns, identify real mechanisms, and then try and address them. Um, Okay, support new pedagogies. Uh, so active learning is basically just anything that doesn't, isn't just lecture. Okay, so this, not active learning. Yeah, I'm just, yeah, okay. Um, even if you're like, oh, I've heard about some of this active learning stuff, I feel quite uncomfortable, just take breaks during lecture. Uh, taking a two-minute break can lead to students learning more and retaining more in a classroom. And it's like the slippery slope towards active learning. Um, so there was um, the National Academies of Science did a big meta review of 225 uh, STEM classrooms specifically. Uh, and they found that in lecture-only uh, sections, they had lower exam scores by 6%, which is more than a half a standard deviation. And they were 1.5 times more likely to fail. Okay. So you're like, oh. Yeah, I should have students try and apply what they've learned in classroom. Has anyone heard about peer instruction for CS.com? Peer instruction, is that, I hope it's a household name. This is 
a photo on the internet, but it's terrible. Like it's, I've never seen a blurrier photo in my life. But I feel like Leo right here. There's, I've got a Beth Simon. Yeah. Um, so peer instruction. If you don't know about it, Leo, do you want to wave your hand? Leo would love to talk to you about peer instruction. Uh, that's in your future. And you're like, oh, wow. I want to know everything CS faculty know, need to know to adopt peer instruction. You should impose upon Leo because Leo works here. But uh, other people don't have to. They can just come here and find ready to adopt course materials by course title. Wow. OK, yeah. <laughs> OK. So. Um, this one is just like my research that I think is super fun. Uh, so my sister researches how people learn math. And I, like you're not surprised, end up reading a lot of her grants and her papers. Just that's the type of family we are. Um, and I became, have become obsessed with this idea of how we teach kids to add. And it's this practice known as concrete representational abstract. And just when kids learn to add, they learn with physical objects. And then they get transitioned to pictures of objects. And then they get transitioned to these actually super, super abstract things of like this squiggle that's a three and this squiggle that's a plus and this squiggle that's a four. Super abstract. And I found in my teaching that I was giving students Java, the abstract version, and I was giving them some representational piece. So I was drawing memory models. Yeah? Uh, but I was never giving them the concrete one. And it's just like, do you know what we've been teaching for a really long time? People to add. And it's just like, oh, like, I think the fact that basically, like, everyone in this room and maybe everyone on the planet learns to add by adding concrete objects, maybe there's something there. Um, so I've been designing, here's some Java up top, and here are uh, before line five and after line five. Uh, so I use the headfirst Java book, has a metaphor of a remote control for a Java reference. So here's a Java reference that's referencing a string. Um, and then, so ultimately I'll use these in interventions or interview studies and things like that. But right now um, we're just... Uh, improving them. So I have seven high school teachers that I work with um, in a grant with Math for America. It's um, a fellowship program for high school teachers. Uh, so I have seven teachers piloting using these in their APCSA. Uh, and we've got you know, arrays and ints and doubles and bullions. The bullions are little switches. They're really fun and sad. Never mind. OK. Uh, <laughs> But so this is, this is like on the horizon of like what paper will come out in two or three years, like hopefully something about this. Uh, but certainly I found that students, when I use this when I'm teaching Java, ask the right questions. So there'll be two remote controls that are referencing like an object or a stuffed animal. And they're like, Colleen, this must be wrong because this suggests that either one of the references could change it and then the other reference would see it too. What I love is that they're like, Colleen, this must be a flaw in your instructional practice. But I'm like, oh, no, that's like fundamental to what I think you're not going to understand as you're learning Java. Uh, and so I've just been really thrilled with the, the ways that these concrete models uh, help them ask better questions. Um, yeah, OK. I think you should train faculty and TAs to respond to bias. Um, some pieces here are we really have to challenge this good bad binary. It's not like good people never do things that have a negative impact and bad people are just bad. Like it's good for us to think racism is bad. Like that's like a good thing. 
But we can't think racism is so bad that if someone's like, yo, Colleen, you did something that was kind of racist or like had a racist impact, like I need to be ready to accept that feedback. Racism is bad, yeah, we want to be there. But we need to be thinking about uh, this is like, even though I have positive intent, it doesn't mean that my impact is always positive. And particularly because there are a lot of different dimensions of our identities that can be biased against. Uh, and so as a woman, I feel ready to spot sexism because I've experienced a lot of sexism. And I think I'm less likely to have a negative impact in terms of saying something accidentally sexist. Uh, but in terms of transphobia, Islamophobia, homophobia, racism, like there's a lot where I have gaps in my knowledge and gaps in my perspective. So I need to be like, continuing to learn and read so that my positive intent aligns with my positive impact. But I can't always assume that it's always going to work out that way. Sorry, this is the, this is the low point of the talk. But we're going to pick it up uh, and introduce a game. So I've designed a game to practice responding to microaggressions. It's called Microaggressions, the game. <laughs> yeah, it's chart topper. Uh, and it's based upon a resource from the National Center for Women and Information Technology. They have tons of great resources. And in particular, they have the Critical Listening Guide that helps you identify some of the things that you always hear about like diversity. But, and you're like, oh, that sounds weird but you're not quite sure what to say, and they help you see some of the common themes and how you might respond. Um, it's awesome. I don't know why I have, that's its URL. Yeah, there we go. Um, and so here's an example, is like, what would you say if your colleague says, women are great collaborators? This one's hard because it seems positive. Does anybody have a knee-jerk reaction of what they might say? Leaders. Women are great leaders, yeah. Other things people might say? Yeah. So are men? Yeah, if I find a woman who's not a great collaborator, be like, hand over your woman card. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, and I think in this, it seems positive. So it seems like not as problematic. Uh, but you're like, oh, what does this mean for women who, aren't collab who don't like to collaborate? And does this feminize collaboration? I think actually collaboration is just a thing we value. And so do we really want to make it so that there's less space for men in their masculinity to demonstrate collaboration? Like, that doesn't seem good for us. Uh, another example is Asians are good at math. OK, first, you're like, ooh, Asian people. Do you know what I mean? Like, anytime you hear a descriptor of a human, but not a noun that describes a human, you should be like, whoa, we should probably add a noun that describes a human. OK, so Asian people are good at math. And you're like, that seems really positive. But you're like, oh, what about Asian students who don't identify as being good at math? Ooh, that seems complicated and some undue pressure. And then if we're saying that Asian students are good at math, who does that mean is not good at math? And the ways in which these seemingly positive statements create hierarchies. And particularly around race, it's problematic to be like, oh, if Asians are good at math, what racial groups are less good at math that make this comparison relevant? And so in general, I want to be like, oh, maybe when we hear stereotypes like this, we push back, even when they're positive. Um, and that's part of what the game helps you do. Uh, I want to give one example from uh, the math SAT 
something like 15 years ago, they make everybody identify as either male or female, and then they uh, checked for whether there was uh, performance differences between uh, men and women on the test, uh, and there was, and it was statistically significant. And you're like, gasp! Maybe men are better at computer science, or sorry, math. But you're like, wait a second, this is like a relatively sophisticated, statistically sophisticated uh, uh, crew. Are you, do you all think when someone tells you that it's statistically significant, do you think, I wonder what the effect size is? Right? The effect size is just the difference in the means measured by the standard deviation. That's what matters. So in this case, where men perform statistically significantly better on the math SAT, was equivalent to a quarter of a question more right. And you're like, oh, cool. So the box that they ticked for their gender on the math SAT actually is a pretty poor predictor of their performance. Uh, but it can fuel uh, these stereotypes and these hierarchies, or these narrative hierarchies of who can do what. And so as, sophistic as statistically sophisticated folks, I think we want to push back against these things where people are noting patterns and then assuming non-overlapping bell curves, because like turns out that's probably not what's going on. Microaggressions, the game. Okay, so microaggressions is this term that gets used to describe these sort of daily or uh, likely unintentional slights that people hear that are often uh, like uh, sort of a, have a subtext of a, of a stereotype or are sending a signal that someone doesn't belong. Things like women are great collaborators or Asians are great at math or stuff like that are examples of this. Um, oh. You're like, Colleen, this game sounds phenomenal. Can I purchase it? Is it $100? $5? Yeah. No, they're free. Yeah, and if you talk to Leo or Christine, you can get more copies of them. But I have uh, two. I have Microaggressions the Game, and then I have a TA training one, which has some of the microaggressions cards and then other scenarios that get get TAs to think about inclusive teaching practices. What would you do if students seem embarrassed to ask for help? It's like, oh, that might have differential impact for students who are stereotyped as not belonging in computer science. So I have both of those. Over on this lovely display, we have some uh, microaggressions the game and teaching practices. And you're like, also, Colleen, I would like a CS teaching tips sticker. That project seems rad. Or maybe every department fridge should have a magnet. Okay. Yeah, thanks. Uh, okay. And so in this game, it's a little like Cards Against Humanity or Apples to Apples. So you pull a card. It has a microaggression. The leader reads it. Everyone says how they would respond. Uh, and then the leader picks a winner. And then the cards have my answer on them. They're not always what you need uh, in these moments, but I think having an answer on there is important. Um, and OK. I'm going to ruin the game for you just a little bit because I'm going to teach you how to cheat at the game. Yeah? I'm sorry. But I think some of these are helpful practices. So when someone says something, you can say, what makes you say that? Or, wow, I don't know what to say. <laughs> that one's often very honest for me. And I used to think about it like that, but now, and I can see why you might say that. But uh, so for, for uh, folks who are teaching in the room, it's tricky how we respond. So say a student says something that I think is hurtful. I will say, wow, I don't know what to say. 
And in doing that, I'm signaling to students who are injured, like, oh, Colleen saw that. And then in the next class, I can follow up. And before that next class, the student who said the thing that I think is hurtful, I can have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them. Because there's a, like an intense power dynamic where if I'm like, oh, that was so racist. Like, this is not going to be great for the educational environment. So I need to have those, those conversations one-on-one, -on -one reassuring people like, oh, I don't think you're a bad person. Like, here's the difference between intent and impact and yada, yada, yada. We're all growing and learning. Challenge the good, bad binary. And like, here's why I think what you said might have had a negative impact, yada, yada, yada. We do all that work individually so that then I can circle back to the classroom and have the conversation. So that, wow, I don't know what to say. Yeah? I think one of the really important things to do in this type of situation is to shut it down so it's not does that tend to be effective? Oh, yeah. So the question was, one of the things, if something has been said that's hurtful, is it can keep going. And so this can be used to shut it down. Uh, so I might have to say additional things to shut it down. Do you know what I mean? So what? Like you can interrupt someone's sentence by saying, wow, I don't know what to say. And then saying, you know, I think this is important, but let's talk about this later. And like, let's talk after class. <laughs> but I think shutting it down can be helpful for the moment. And then you can work through the like, uh, you know, a student in my class might feel silenced by that. And I want to be able to talk to them one-on-one -on -one to work through that and thinking about the impact on others. Yeah, did you want to add something else? Yeah. Um, and whether or not the microaggressions game isn't perfect because the power dynamics matter a lot. Uh, who says it and that? And then who's going to hear whether or not I respond? And then I think this piece is that if a microaggression targets you, you can just always opt out. Like sometimes I'm at a cocktail party and someone says something sexist and I say, ha ah, and I just turn away. Do you know what I mean? Because like, I don't want to deal with that. Uh, yeah, that's not what I need. Um, but when a, a microaggression target doesn't target a dimension of your identity, I think it's really important as a community that we're stepping forward and really trying to respond. It's tricky as a white person, because when I hear racism, I'm like, oh, I should pounce. But I'm like, oh, I don't need to take up space if a person of color wants to like handle this. And so in a group where there's something, I think, hurtful, racially problematic said, I will get in quickly a wow. And then I'll scan to see, like, oh, should I like nod encouragingly as someone else handles this, or should I speak up? It doesn't mean I'm always. Sometimes it means I'm going to take up more space than I should. Um, you know, if a person of color wanted to handle it, and then I kind of step all over it, and it doesn't mean that my impact is going to be entirely positive. But I think when the microaggression doesn't target us, we need to be stepping forward and engaging. It might not go perfect. I'm sorry, but. And maybe the microaggressions card game will help you feel more comfortable. OK. Uh, fostering student community. Uh, <clears throat> so sometimes people are like, oh, we should, we should send students only to these big conferences. The conferences are great. And we should spend $2,000 on every student who goes to the conference. And then students are like, can, can we have chips? for our social event, and you're like, no. <laughs> it's just like, oh, if we fund the initiatives where students want to bring other students together to create community, if we fund those first, I think that's really impactful. Uh, uh, having student groups who have all the money they could possibly want to buy 
chips and pizza and stuff like that uh, can go a long way for supporting community in the department. And thinking about as a department chair or other faculty scheduling semester or quarterly meetings with the group to be like, oh hey, you know, this is just our core our quarterly meeting where we want to check in to see if there are any changes you think we should be making as a department to make sure that students are better supported. So opening those lines of buying them lots of pizza and chips because it's not that expensive and then opening those lines of communication uh, can be really powerful. Um, and if you're like only motivated by the goal of avoiding protest, you could be like, oh, this is going to be better to avoid protest is having those open lines of communication. Yeah. Um, at Harvey Mudd, okay, so you know Harvey Mudd has a bunch of women in computing, and Christine, you, you've probably read all of Christine's papers where she described how they have a bunch of women in computing, or how we have a bunch of women in computing. One of the things that they didn't describe in any of those papers, I think, is that around the same time, they painted murals in the basement computer science labs. So here's actually our new lab that does pair programming, uh, and so there's two monitors, uh, and so we can make eye contact, we can look at our screens, eye contact, make, look at our screens, yeah? So this is a nice little setup for supporting students in pair programming. And actually, after they designed, did the intervention at Harvey Mudd with the changing the intro course, yada, 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 um, some research came out out of UW Seattle. So Sapnacharian's a psychology professor. And she brought students into a fake computer science lab. And either it looked like this with Star Trek posters and empty soda cans, or nature posters and empty water bottles. So trash in both. Okay, And then she asked students, how interested they were in studying computer science. Once they were in this fake computer science lab, and uh, women were more likely to express that they were less interested in studying computer science when they were brought into this fake computer science lab that had Star Trek posters and empty soda cans. And the idea is that those align with the stereotypes of computer science, and these subtle environmental cues created a sense of a lack of ambient belonging or a lack of belonging for students. Uh, and so here are the... La are the uh, murals that got painted. This is my favorite intervention because it's free to sustain. Do you know what I mean? Just don't paint over it and you're good. Um, and so we have hot air balloons and then we have a little birch tree forest that I think is really nice. And then the new one uh, is, we call it the rock lab or the we rock lab. Um, okay, so uh, show students the breadth of computer science. And one of the big things that uh, folks, including Christine, did at Harvey Mudd, uh, was redesigning that intro course to be, show the breadth. So a student might hate 40% of computer science, but still be like, oh yeah, I want to be a computer science major. Like This stuff is rad. Because it turns out we have a super broad field, and you can hate parts of it and like still be a computer science person. Um, here's where we're going to jump way forward. Oh, no, I'm going to do one more slide. Um, so a next study that I'll tell you about, and then we'll wrap things up, is about uh, communal versus agentic goals. So one of the survey questions asks students how important it is to have uh, to give back to my community, have a social impact, serve humanity, help others. These are described as communal goals. Uh, they're contrasted with agentic goals of making money, independence, important decisions, well-known, yada, yada. Uh, but people can have both goals. Do you buy that? Yeah. But here's the thing that's really interesting about communal and agentic goals is that women are more likely than men, students of color more likely than white students and fringe generations. So that's students who don't have a parent or guardian with a four-year uh, 
undergraduate degree are more likely than continuing generations. So students who do have a parent who uh, completed four years of college uh, are more likely to endorse communal goals, so like want to help society. And so you're like, oh, uh, these, to a rough approximation, are students who are underrepresented in computing. And so thinking about <clears throat> Amanda Diekman has looked at trying to say, oh, maybe this mismatch between what students want and their perception of the field predicts uh, a lack of interest. And then in my work, we use the CRA st- uh, study to try and see if it predicts, uh, if that mismatch uh, predicts a lack of sense of belonging. Yep, it does. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, some of the stuff that you have to do around diversity and inclusion, like, isn't that surprising? Um, you're like, ta-da. Okay, so um, you should try and convince your students that CS has communal affordances. Like, it can be used to help society. It likely helps everyone and actually has a differential impact for women, students of color, and first-generation college students. Uh, right now, we're interviewing a bunch of uh, STEM and non-STEM students to try and be like, yo, what are even the things that shape whether or not you think computing has communal affordances? Because I, I don't know. Like, I want to start designing convincing students, but I don't know what the right leverage points are. Uh, so hopefully more will come out on that. But uh, if you just want to mention to your students, computing can be used for positive social good. Uh, it won't take a lot of time, and it seems like it vaguely might be positive. Yeah? But hopefully I'll have more work for you in the next sort of two years about what exactly what videos or slides I want you to be using in your classroom. Okay, we hit through the, the seven points on here, um, and uh, I'll stop there to take questions. And I've got the tiny URL for the slides if you want them. Thanks very much.